You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined again by Dr. LaQuandra Nesbitt, Director of the District of Columbia Department of Health, Washington, D.C. She served in that position almost seven years, it'll be seven years this January. She is a all-star leader in equity, minority health, childhood development, has led the way in looking at marijuana and decriminalization, and has been absolutely constant voice here in the District of Columbia during this pandemic. And as a citizen of the District of Columbia for the last 27 years and for a total of 30 years, I must say I haven't been prouder of being in the District of Columbia than in this period and watching your response and the mayor's response in managing this pandemic. So we're here to get a bit of an update on things. There's a number of specific questions that we've sort of, that are all very predictable we want to cover, but I want to first ask you to comment on your reaction to what President Biden unveiled last week, his six major points. I mean, this big shift towards a much more coercive approach, heavy reliance on mandates, the approval of Pfizer and imminent approval of Moderna seems to weigh, patience has run out. They're trying to set examples and inspire states and territories and private sector entities and universities to follow suit. There's this mandatory vaccination requirement for federal employees, contractors, those with over 100 employees, either vaccinate or test. They're talking about easing access to boosters, keeping schools safely open, something that dominates your life and others here that require vaccinations for all staff, ensure in-class instruction, renewed emphasis on testing, something that's become a big priority here for you as well, $2 billion for $300 million at-home test kits, support local businesses, try and improve care, support our stressed hospitals, increase monoclonal antibodies and the likes. What do you make of this and what does this mean from where you sit and, and the leadership that you're bringing to the district? Sure. You know, I, my initial reaction, well, first, Steve, thanks for having me again. It's always a pleasure to be with you and, and to be able to have these thoughtful and insightful discussions and to talk through what we're doing here locally and, and our vantage point we have in terms of uh, what's going on in our nation in terms of our global health security. You know, uh, the President's six-point plan I released last week provides a tremendous amount of opportunity, uh, not only for discussion and reflection in terms of the place that we are in currently with the pandemic, but also a lot of opportunity for changing course and direction, especially in jurisdictions where things have not gone as planned. We all know that there's a lot more we can be doing. We all know that there's a lot more members of the public could do in order to help us really get to the end of the the light at the end of the tunnel and to put this pandemic behind us. We've tried a number of things across this country and here locally in terms of getting people vaccinated. When vaccine supply first became available, it was limited. We had very few locations 
locations across the country where people could get a shot. People had to sign up on websites that or on call centers and uh, experience different degrees of frustration and celebration with those systems. And now everyone in the U.S. is within five to 10 miles from a place to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, And many of those places, almost all of them, are offering walk-up so you don't have to make an appointment. And they're often open on the weekends and the evenings. So tremendous opportunity for people to get uh, vaccines. We've had community partners, healthcare providers offering information sessions to talk to people about the vaccine. We know the vaccines are safe. We know that they are effective. And there are still some people who are concerned and they have hesitancy. But we've done a good job of getting people out there, even here in our own community, folks are knocking on doors. But yet, even with all of that, uh, we have a lot of people who still haven't made the choice to get vaccinated. And it's very difficult to move on and to reactivate all of the functions of our society in the same way without the potential for disabling impacts when people haven't made the choice, the wise choice, to get vaccinated. And so the president's six-point agenda really helps to enable those actions in a very different way. Uh, We know that the majority of adults in this country are tied to employment opportunities. The federal government is the largest employer. In many parts of the country, the local and state governments are large employers, and if they follow suit with the federal government were requiring vaccination as a condition for employment and contracting, we can really drastically shift the proportion of adults who are vaccinated. Uh, We are all anxiously waiting for the FDA to authorize vaccines for people under the age of 12. And until that day comes, it's really going to do a tremendous amount of good to not only getting our schools open, but keeping our schools open to have everyone who takes care of children be vaccinated. So putting more structure in that environment for vaccine requirements for teachers and Head Start workers and child care providers, again, will help to not only protect the workers, but will help to so that they can keep coming to work and keep those places open, but will ensure that any child who starts in person can continue in person uninterrupted. So there's a lot of tremendous opportunity there for all of the incentives we put in place, giving away cars, giving away a million dollars. All of those things have done what they're going to do. And now your sustained employment is going to be the next incentive that we'll have to we'll have to use to get people vaccinated. I think there are two other things that I want to highlight that probably didn't get as much attention um, as the vaccine requirement has received. And one of those is making sure that people have access to treatment for COVID-19 if they need treatment to COVID-19 for COVID-19. So really expanding access to monoclonal antibodies. For the past several months, as those monoclonal antibodies have been approved or authorized for use by the FDA, they've been largely available in the inpatient care setting. Now, you don't have to be admitted to the hospital to get them, but most infusions are happening sort of in those outpatient surgical centers and in emergency departments and the like. And there's a huge initiative underway where we even have a federally qualified health center here in D.C. that's now going to be offering monoclonal antibody treatments to folks. So This is a very big deal to ensure that if anyone gets sick with COVID, whether they are an unvaccinated person who has an infection or a fully vaccinated person who has what we call a breakthrough infection, that they're going to have access to uh, life-saving treatment and therapeutics. And then the third piece that, um, that I think didn't get as much attention is one that you mentioned around testing. 
And we've we've put out the pedal to the metal on testing here in the district and we've never let up. So we have testing boxes and testing kits and places all over the city. Six days a week, there are fire stations and firehouses all across the city that are offering testing for free to our residents. Testing has always been free, has always been widely available. And the president's and his team's efforts to do that across the country and making more testing kits available in non-healthcare settings settings, making sure testing kits are available in community health centers, and most importantly, negotiating the price of the over-the-counter kits that are available in retail pharmacies so that they are able, people are able to purchase those at cost. Uh, for people who live in communities, unlike ours, where testing hasn't been free, they can still get a COVID test, know their status, and stay home and not spread the virus to other people. So that's a really big deal, especially in rural parts of the country or other communities where the financial resources haven't been there for them to be able to sustain public testing efforts. Thanks, LaQuandra. A couple of thoughts in response to what you just said. On the monoclonal antibodies, we'll be launching in October a, a working group on therapies within our CSIS commission. And we're going we're gonna to want to ask you to come and, and participate with us on that. You've been very, very generous towards us on our task force on misinformation and vaccine confidence. But within our Health Security Commission, we're moving in that direction. We're talking to some of the industry people who are developing, who've got pipeline products coming forward. And the question for you is, do we know enough yet as to whether those the expansion of monoclonal antibodies is bringing down the numbers on hospitalizations, or is it too early? Sure. So, yes, we do know. Um, so there's been some reports that have been published and studies that have been published and data will continue to be published about the effectiveness of these therapies, the monoclonal antibodies. Initially, they started with a very narrow eligibility criteria in terms of people who were uh, older, who were demonstrating certain clinical symptoms in terms of being eligible. And the initial studies were really focusing on that long-term care population that was being, uh, who were avoiding admissions. And a lot of our efforts initially, we were brokering partnerships with long-term care facilities and hospitals to be able to provide monoclonal antibodies to long-term care residents who had a positive test, uh, but did not yet meet admission criteria in hopes that we could stave off an admission. And that happened across the country. And we were, in fact, preventing hospitalizations. And now we can see it more broadly in terms of a broader use of the monoclonal antibodies. One, being a function of increased clinician and public awareness of the therapy, but also increased availability and access to the therapy is going to make a tremendous difference. So we know that there's still ongoing work by a lot of major medical centers to do these evaluative studies uh, to show the effectiveness of monoclonal antibodies, both you know showing if they're continuing to work against different variants to prevent hospitalizations and not, and uh, how useful they can be to us down the road. So we, we're excited about their potential. Thank you. I want to turn to Andrew just one moment. I want to ask you one big picture question, which is in the district, of course, we have a fragile and still dangerous situation. We can talk about the ways in which there are still populations that we are having difficulty reaching. There's still populations that are not getting vaccinated at the levels needed. But the big picture, it seems to me, is that we've avoided the worst of the outcomes over the course of the last 18 months. We had a, a major surge in July, five-fold increase in, in infection. So we're not, we're not outside of the Delta 
hitting us, but we have not had the really high peaks. We haven't had the really damaging, uncontrolled outbreaks. Why is that? Is that a fair estimation? Fragile, dangerous situation, but one where we have avoided the worst outcomes. And if if you agree, why is that? Interestingly, I was having a call with one of our key partners this morning talking about expectant management, right? So you you go back to the old adage, you plan for the worst, but expect the best. Uh, And what we've been able to do in the district is to plan for the worst by seeing what when the when COVID first uh, came to the United States, we saw geographic waves and those geographic waves have continued. Right. So initially we saw things happen in the northeast, further northeast than we are, then out far west, the Midwest. So we were able to do our planning around what things they did not have in place that we should have in place. We built a huge alternate care site at our convention center. We built surge bed capacity in all of our hospitals. And we were extremely fortunate to never have to activate an alternate care site uh, hospital or field hospital in the district, even in the peak of cases that occurred around the winter holidays. Now, we have seen our cases go up when the cases go up around the country and go down when the cases go down around the country. But as you've mentioned, we haven't seen that tenfold, 20-fold increase that some parts of the country have seen. And I, I attribute that to two things. District residents have done what we've asked them to do. Before we had vaccines and we had to implement a lot of mitigation strategies, asking people to wear masks, to stay home if they were sick. Our businesses really buckled down and helped us with enforcement of mask requirements, of social distancing requirements. I mean, we were a city that really embraced the concept of being all in this together and getting through this together. And so that was helpful for us in the initial phases. And then vaccines came and we had extremely high demand for vaccines. Now we still has have, as you mentioned, certain segments of our population, in particular African-Americans, because we don't have a, a challenge with getting our Latino population vaccinated, as well as our Asian Pacific Islander population. Those, those populations are getting vaccinated at the same rates as whites, if not higher. So we haven't had challenges in those groups. But when we have look at our overall rate of vaccine uptake in the city, it's helped to protect us from this Delta wave uh, that's happened across the country. So we know that the smallest proportion of our cases are happening in the unvaccinated. When we look at our week-to-week cases that are happening in unvaccinated people, less than one in five of our new cases are happening in people who are fully vaccinated. So it just like the rest of the country, this is this new wave is really a pandemic of of the unvaccinated. So I, again, I attribute that to our residents doing what we asked them to do in the early days around mitigation, uh, when we were social distancing, masking, washing our hands, staying home if we were sick and still doing all of those things. And now in these phases of getting vaccinated, we're above the national average in terms of our population who, who has been fully you vaccinated. Also, you also moved really rapidly in reimposing the indoor mask requirement as the Delta was spiking July, you were pretty fast out of the gate. It also seems to me that there were some innovations that were quite interesting here among them, those who are homeless, those living in shelters, those who are vulnerable in a, open to a, going to a quarantine hotel to protect their families. You offered those options early in. You, took, you gave those people an option that oftentimes is not available. 
Absolutely. In spring 2020, we knew what densely populated environments would do in terms of increasing the risk of transmission. And we moved very quickly to depopulate uh, those congregate settings. And so that applied in terms of what we did with our population that was experiencing homelessness. Many of them received an assessment of their health and those who were at higher risk for complications of COVID-19 were moved into higher uh, barrier shelters where they were given individual accommodations pretty much throughout the peak days of the pandemic. And many of them have since moved into more permanent housing uh, solutions. As a result of that identification, we also had a robust and very rigorous testing program in our homeless shelters with our healthcare partners and community partners to quickly identify anyone who was experiencing symptoms as they were presented to the shelter on a daily or nightly basis so that they could be moved into isolation and quarantine. But that, that housing piece, it extended beyond folks who were experiencing homelessness. Uh, we know that there are parts of our city where we have multi-generational families and that one person getting COVID in that household could quickly spread COVID throughout that entire home. And so we offered those individuals a place to live as well during their isolation. And we provided for their daily needs. So we would bring, make sure that they had food. We would make sure that, you know, if they told us they needed a toothbrush, we'd make sure that they had that as well. And I'm extraordinarily proud of our uh, Department of Corrections. We had very little COVID outbreaks in our Department of Corrections because of the work that they did in terms of testing and isolating and quarantining inmates and staff, putting protocols in place for all inmates coming into the facility, uh, really helped us avoid many of the catastrophic activities and events that happened elsewhere in the region and across the country. Thanks, LaCondra. Andrew. Thank you, Steve. Dr. Nesbitt, Steve alluded to your work regarding misinformation and disinformation before. I wanted to ask you, do you feel like we're still in the midst of an infodemic when it comes to this? Oh, absolutely. And inexplicably so, right? So uh, we still get invited as the health department and we have a speaker's bureau and we still receive invitations to come and meet and speak with groups. And many of these folks who invite us to come speak to their staff or come speak to their clients acknowledge that the information is there, it's readily available, but maybe people need to have a one-on-one and ask questions. And it is no longer shocking, uh, but it's become exceptionally frustrating to live the experience of, you know, one piece of bad information has to be overcome. I don't. I know now it's not three times, it's like 30 times uh, before people wow. no longer believe it, right? So if you just take the one example of infertility being associated with the vaccines, There's not a single study published. There was a group who started that pretty much in social media to say that vaccines caused infertility. Then the public health and healthcare enterprise had to generate data to show that it did not. That has shown that people have conceived or having healthy pregnancies, that people were pregnant and had a healthy baby and healthy delivery to refute this fertility uh, claim that's associated with the vaccines. And yet and still, we still encounter lots of people of all ages, grandparents who are concerned about their grandchildren getting the vaccine, women of reproductive age who are concerned about 
about getting the vaccine. Parents who are concerned about their 12-year-old getting the vaccine because of a myth that has been out there that has gotten far more wind and legs than the actual facts of how well women of reproductive age and pregnant women have done when getting vaccinated. It's more harmful to your reproductive health to get COVID than it is to get a COVID-19 vaccine. So there's a lot of confusion still surrounding boosters, which is what we're all looking at now. Do you think, and there's been calls for, you know, greater communications and quality of guidance. What approach are you taking? You know, this booster conversation is very, um, it's very tricky, right? Because you hear about booster data, uh, but people don't really show you the studies that they're talking about. They're like, this country suggests that there should be evidence that there should be a booster. When we first started talking about COVID-19 vaccines and what the FDA would do, would use as a threshold for determining that the vaccines were effective, we had as a threshold that they would have to be 50% effective or higher, right? And so now that we see the studies that show how the variants have decreased effectiveness against new infections, right? They're still highly effective against severe illness, hospitalizations, and death. We're still talking over 60%, 70%. And so they're still highly effective vaccines. And we're still looking at when do we see that, that, that immunity wane, right? Is it at six months? Is it at eight months? Exactly when? I think there's a lot of public anxiety about wanting a booster that is driving the booster conversation as opposed to us having data that shows that vaccines are now only 20% effective and a booster will make them 80% effective or higher again. So I think we need to be very focused on allowing our authorities, the FDA, the CDC, to review that data with the same diligence that they have done before, make a recommendation in terms of what populations should receive a booster and when, and then develop a plan for it. Um, where I think another place that the anxiety comes from is people remember January, February, and March, when vaccine supply was extremely limited, where people had to get in queue to get a vaccine, to wait once a week in some jurisdictions for vaccine appointments to be available, to have to move heaven and earth in order to get an appointment. And that's not our current state of play. There's plenty of vaccine around the country. If you go to vaccines.gov, you can find vaccine anywhere. In the district, when we first started, we had like 10 places where you can go get a vaccine. Now there are well over 100 places where you can go get a vaccine and they don't require appointments. That's not going to change when the boosters become available. And let's say we go with the notion that these are boosters for the general public, for people who've been vaccinated had their second dose six months ago. That's still going to be a rolling tide, right? Not everyone who's been vaccinated is all going to flood into that system on sep on the you know our hallowed September twentieth. Uh, it's still going to be a very rolling system. So some of the communication that needs to happen is again this expectation management, where we're really ensuring people that when it's time for your booster, it will be there. Getting it early if you were just received your second dose two months ago, getting enough. Other dose, a third dose now really isn't going to make that much of a difference for you. So those are the types of things that I think we have to provide a modicum of assurance for folks. Is there a problem with the way so many people from so many different agencies at the federal, state, and local level are communicating that maybe the wires are getting crossed? Is it 
do you think that that's contributed to the infodemic as well, that people aren't really receiving the information in a way that they can process? Maybe they're overwhelmed with the information. There's so much information, they don't know how to process it. Or maybe they're getting their mixed signals. So I, I would see it from this perspective. We all know that there are bureaucracies, right? And each agency of the federal government has a different mission and has a different responsibility in theory, right? But the people who work in those organizations often have some of the same skills and can arrive at some of the same conclusions or process the same types of information. And so you have a construct where the NIH or National Institutes of Health has one responsibility, the Food and Drug Administration or FDA has another responsibility, the CDC has another responsibility, and then all their advisory committees have even more responsibilities, right? But many of them are all still staffed with scientists, immunologists, vaccinologists, virologists, right, pharmacologists, all of those folks sit in all of those agencies and spaces and are looking at data often the same way and very rarely in different ways. So it's not far be it for them to, you know, you, you want people to be able to express their professional opinion, but it's not always something that the general public knows or many people who work in this field altogether knows that you listen to the, you know, the FDA is authoritative on when something is actually approved, that they are the ones looking at the safety profiles, that they are the ones making the decision about who and under what circumstances, and then the ball rolls with the with the other organization. So I don't think that that's something that we should require uh, members of our general public to have to learn to be able to navigate this difficult time. I do think that there could be some improvements uh, in those communication strategies with a single voice and a single message. But I think that's where that's my observation of where it originates from. LaQuandra, can we talk a bit about schools, school kids, teachers, sure. staff? I mean, the, you face this very complicated set of challenges, right? We have no vaccines yet for under 12s. We have great di- divergences uh, in numbers of 12 to 15, 12 to 16, very low numbers, like 14%, a figure I saw recently, I think cited by you in terms of black youth between 12 and 15 years of age. White youth in this district in the public education system are a little above 50%. That's still a big gap with either of those populations. And then you've got to try and get your staff fully vaccinated so that you're you're protecting protecting them and protecting the children. And you want, there's a priority in trying to keep people in person in schools, trying to avoid what happened in the earlier in the year where only about a fifth of the public school children, 10,000, were in person, and that tended to be skewed towards the wealthier population, towards the white population, and trying to avoid that outcome and to keep people in the schools and not suffer. It's a, you're juggling a lot of different complicated priorities here. What's your thinking around how we approach COVID-19 in children? Yeah, so we've got great partners here in our education agencies who are taking on the majority of the responsibility for ensuring that our schools are open and that they are open safely. We've provided guidance to them for 
throughout the pandemic for several months. Uh, our guidance is available to our public schools, our public charter schools, and our private schools. And then they develop their plans as to how they're going to implement the, our guidance. Our public schools chancellor, Dr. Farabee, and our state superintendent, Dr. Grant, and their teams have done a remarkable job with ensuring that there's access to testing for the students and the staff uh, working in the school environment. The mayor has required that our public school teachers be vaccinated. I think that we can continue to monitor the situation as we've stated before in terms of whether or not we're getting good uptake on a voluntary basis in terms of what those adults are doing in those school buildings. But again, you know, the the young children are following the behavior of their parents. The demographics of what race and ethnic demographics of vaccination rates in 12 to 15 year olds follow the 30 to 40 year old population, right? Those are their parents. Um, So if the parents haven't gotten vaccinated, the likelihood that they're going to take their child to get vaccinated is extremely low. And we've done lots of things. We've done the scholarships. We've given away AirPods. We have over 30 school-based vaccine clinics. So there's a host of activities and things that have been put in place. And so what do you do when people won't get vaccinated and you still want to have a good school year? Well, you put a lot of stuff in place in the school building, and that's what our schools have done. Uh, So we've got mandatory masking. We have all types of filters and HVAC systems. They've gotten handbooks and financial resources to be able to host as many activities outdoors as possible, including lunch and classrooms, especially classrooms for children who are under the age of 12. We're being very thoughtful as a community in terms of how we prioritize the learning part of it, right? Going to school for learning and in-person classes versus all of the other stuff that happens at school, all of the other social activities and extracurricular activities that create even more risk for transmission. And our our chancellor has even created a pledge uh, for families to be mindful of the activities that they participate in outside of the school building and how that can increase risk for transmission. So it really is, again, we are always reviewing and assessing what things could happen next, what direction we can go in, what recommendations is the public health agency we would make to our education partners. Uh, But I think that they're doing a tremendous job. We've gotten through the first two weeks We're in our uh, third week now, and we feel like we're in a really good place, and we're going to keep monitoring, and we're going to keep communicating and over-communicating to families. Dr. Nesbitt, we always like to end the podcast by asking our guests, you know, what what gives you the most optimism going forward? You know, we certainly have a lot to be optimistic with the work that you and the mayor have done here in D.C. What gives you the most optimism locally and then nationally as well? I've said for the past couple of months that I really feel like vaccine requirements are what's going to get us over the finish line. And I feel optimistic that the support for those are growing. And I, and I don't feel that the support for them are just growing by elected officials. I think the public wants it. You have families who want to know that the people caring for their children in schools and in hospitals are, in fact, vaccinated. Uh, They want to know when they go to the park and recreation center that that person is, in fact, vaccinated who's hosting senior aerobics. And so there is a broader embrace of these vaccine requirements that's going to help us make even more strides. And we're going to capture, what is it, that 10 percent of people in polling who say, I won't do it unless you make me. 
And so now we, you know, we'll capture those ten per, that ten percent, and we'll we'll get even further down the road. So I, I, that gives me great optimism that now we're getting more traction uh, for that approach. And we didn't just start there, right? We tried a number of other things, and people were incentivized, and people participated in those incentives. And now I still see the vaccine requirement as an incentive. It's an incentive con- to continue to engage in the workforce. We didn't talk anything about the fact that this is the capital of the United States and that anything that we do in the district is seen in that light, but also it's a regional approach. We have to operate very close, in close concert with our colleagues in Virginia and Maryland. Can you offer a bit of a reflection on what does this mean? I mean, we're as a capital city, of course, we've been rocked by some pretty tough times over the course of this pandemic. January 6th, June of, of 2020, after George Floyd was was murdered. We've had some really trying times that test the public health system itself, as well as basic security. I, you know, I, I appreciate that, that observation and what, um, you know, my 10 plus years in and out of D.C. and in particular in these governmental public health leadership roles have taught me is that during times of adversity, this city really rises to show people who we are, who we are as a nation, but who we are as a local government, who we are as a local community. And so while we have tough times ahead of us, I have extreme confidence that our residents, our business owners, our elected leaders, our community leaders are committed to ensuring that we recover from this pandemic in ways that have us living in a more equitable, fair society with even more opportunity for people on the other end. And the amounts of regional coordination and collaboration that has happened through the pandemic, I think, has cemented in our minds the long-term need uh, for regional collaboration. We've always had the Council of Governments. We've always talked about, you know, the DMV, um, but we've lived the DMV now consecutive for 18 plus months, um, unrelenting 18 plus months, touching base with each other to understand what we were all going to do. And when there was great apprehension about a big decision, and knowing that other people were in it with you meant so much. Uh, and we can carry that same type of partnership and spirit of collaboration forward on other uh, big issues and challenges and opportunities that we want to address moving forward. Thank you. I want to thank your colleague, Dr. Kimberly Henderson, for helping us pull this conversation together. She's been very generous to us in the past and, and in this occasion as well. Mm-hmm. And she's a terrific partner in this. And I want to thank you for your leadership in this city, our fair city here, and wish you all the best. And thank you for taking the time to share with us so candidly and eloquently your thoughts on where we are. And we'll come back to you again, obviously. (laughs) Thank you. This is not the end, Laquanda. But it will be soon. It will be soon. (laughs) Thank you so much. Take care. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Bulver and Samantha Chivers. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS 2021, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts. Thank you.